0: how are we? Good, good, good. Uh, I definitely had an opening joke, and now I got to explain why my mom owns a horse. What is this about, all right? I, uh, I, I'm tempted to, to just leave it at that, but I also feel like I got to justify me being from Detroit now, or else all my jokes throughout the rest of the sermon are dead, right? So uh, I, I'll let y'all think what you want to think, and you can talk to me afterwards if you want. I am from Detroit, though. All right, let's get in. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, We are going to be in Ephesians uh, this morning. I'm excited to dive back in together and... Uh, hey, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are actually coming forward now, and uh, if you just want to slip up your hand, they would love to give you one. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, would you please take or keep that? It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word. You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the Uversion app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin, you can follow along that way. You can also take this link right here and put it right into your browser, and you can follow along that way as well. Uh, we actually say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the Word, okay? We want you to see the Word. We know. We believe that, uh, man, God's Word speaks. It's alive. It's living. It's active. And so there may be something that is said that triggers your heart. And as you look at the Word, God may be speaking to you in different ways. And we love that. We want you to hear, understand, know the Word. And so, man, please get your eyes on the Word in whatever way that looks like. We want you to be able to follow along. We want you to, the, the Word to speak to you this morning. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, hey, let's kick it off. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick it right up in verse 1. As we uh, have been going through Ephesians, Paul starts off this letter, and he uh, mentions him being an an apostle of God, and he mentions him really trying to to make much of Jesus. And then here in chapter 4, he says this in verse 1, I therefore, okay, let's stop right there, all right? Whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what is it there for, all right? And so this gives us a great opportunity to actually go back into all of what Paul has said. Thank you, Paul, for that great grace. We get to recap after not being in it for four weeks, all right? And so uh, Ephesians is a book that is loaded with identity. What is your personal identity? What is the church's identity? And how do we uh, relate uh, from that? Why does that even matter? And so in chapter one, what we actually see is that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We see God's wild and his beautiful love for us that God loves you and he has called you to his own. If you go to the next slide there, you'll see there's this gray overlay, right? And then in the second part of it, we see actually a prayer for us to be able to understand this love What does this mean? What does this look like? How do we understand God's love more? And then all of a sudden we go into chapter two. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that we're heirs? Well, Paul lays out the gospel. He says, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ came and died a death that we should have died, he resurrected, he gives us new life that if we believe in him, then the realities of chapter one are true for us. We actually have life. We are children of God. We are heirs of God along with him. And then he goes into the second half of chapter two where he says, hey, not only has the gospel fixed your vertical relationship with God, but it's also fixed your horizontal relationship with one another. And so because of the gospel, now the Jew and the Gentile who were once separated are now unified in Christ. And so we should celebrate our diversity and even fight for it. Why? Because we see God's reconciling work as he brings across all peoples to each other. And then he carries that into chapter three to say, hey, the mystery of this is that not only are the Jew and Gentile reconciled, but the Gentile is actually now brought into the faith. Now the Gentile is able to receive this gospel, and and Christ is making all of us a new man. Therefore, we should celebrate this together. We should fight for this. We should long for this. We should want to see this. Our identity is becoming very different because God is saving a lot of people that are not like us, amen? Amen. And so all of a sudden, we see this beautiful mix, and then Paul closes chapter three with this grand prayer. He prays that we would have power and strength to be able to comprehend what God is doing, that we would know God's love, that he would alter who we are. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians are really what we would like to call uh, orthodoxy, which just means right thinking or or right doctrine. Paul is laying out the gospel, the realities of the gospel, and he wants it to over and over and over and over over again sink into our hearts the gospel the gospel the gospel and paul is laying out that we would understand the gospel for no person in this world christian or non-christian can hear the gospel enough amen We need the gospel. And so Paul is just laying it over and over and over. Now, now, in light of the gospel, in light of the realities of who Jesus is, and in light of what God has done for us, and in light of right thinking, Paul now is going to switch in this back half of Ephesians, and he's going to move to what we would call orthopraxy, or right living, right actions. And so we see the belief in the gospel should now actually alter who we are as a people, and our actions should look different. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, Paul addresses having the right attitude or the right thinking. How are we to practically respond to the gospel? Our hearts, our attitude, our heads, our thinking should then influence our hands, our action. And then in chapter 4, verse 17 through 5, 21 or 22, we see Paul laying out how we actually live that out. And so we get really, really practical on this back half of Ephesians, and I love it, okay? And so Paul, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, in light of the realities of the gospel, in light of the Holy Spirit making you a new creation, and in light of all of the truths about the beauty about who Jesus is, I therefore now want you to what? Let's see what he has to say, all right? Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so verses 1 through 3 tell us that we have to have the right posture in response to the gospel, okay? The first way that our attitudes are shifted, the first way that we change who we are is that we have a, a gospel posture, a gospel heart. We, we alter who we are on that next slide there. And so you'll see this reality of like, man, God is trying to do this work in us throughout uh, the text as a whole. And the first thing is that because of the gospel, our hearts truly should change. The way that we act, the way that we think, our very attitude should actually look very differently. Our vertical relationship with God should actually be expressed in our horizontal relationship with each other. You tracking with that? And so you see this beauty here. Paul even hints at his vertical relationship with God because he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord there in verse one. He doesn't call himself, Paul, a prisoner of Rome, though this is technically what he is, but he actually says that he's a prisoner of the Lord. He has surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ and that has landed him in prison and he's totally great with that because he trusts Jesus to rule his life. Have you trusted Jesus to rule your life like that? Is your vertical relationship such where if God calls you into things that may be hard, right, are you willing to do that? Maybe you end up in a jail cell. Maybe you end up a missionary in a third world country. Maybe you end up serving people that are broken and messy and it makes you broken and messy even. Are you okay with that? The vertical relationship with God has to be there and we see it even in Paul there. But Paul then says that he wants you to walk worthy of the gospel, which the implication means the opposite is walking unworthy of the gospel. That's a really massive phrase, right? You are unworthy of the gospel of Jesus? That's a massive phrase, and so what does that look like, right? What does unworthy versus worthy mean? Well, Paul says that we are to be humble with one another if we want gospel unity to exist. If we want to see the impact of our lives, then we have to exercise humility. Humble people are living for the good of others, not the good of themselves. Interestingly, actually, in the first century, humility was actually seen as a weakness, and pride was actually seen as something that you desired, even a virtue, and. So so, Christians were often seen as weak because they were called to be a humble people. And we live in a culture today that's almost the exact same, right? Self exaltation rules the day. Hello, politics right? Celebrities, sports, whatever it may be. There's this uh, a boasting in oneself. There's a, a work for yourself. There's a defend yourself. Defend your actions, right? Think about yourself and think about how it impacts you first. We are literally taught to do that since our infancy. And the Bible would say, no, 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 no. And you're humble. You're actually thinking of others in that way, right? Christ lays down his life thinking about us, not about himself. And if we actually believe in Jesus, then we are to respond likewise, We are to lay down our lives for the sake of others. This is having a right attitude. It's a right heart posture. It means your heart has received it. You wanna then apply this to others. In fact, Tim Keller, who is a pastor of a church in New York in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which let's just all admit that's a great title for a book, right? He says this, he says the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. right? And that is truth, right? We are to be humble. We're to be a gentle people. We're to be a patient people, it says next. Hello, patience, right? Like, you know the prayer in our culture? It's like, God, give me patience and hurry, right and that's how we tend to respond to things right we desire patience but we want to do it right now right we want to move right now no, no no the text says we need to be patient not just in general but even with each other as we work toward this gospel unity it takes patience and we have to uh, love each other that means that we're going to have to put up with some annoyances and some challenges from one another and be patient with each other in that process this is an important piece right it's easy to learn the facts about somebody but it's hard to be patient with people Patience takes proximity, and proximity takes time, and time means you have to suffer with each other if we're going to actually build into one another just as Christ suffered with you, right? I'm really glad that God was patient with a foolish man like me because I was not who he wanted me to be, and I'm still not who he wants me to be, and yet he is still enduring with me. Are we doing that with one another, friends? Is that how our attitude is? Does our heart posture in that way? We have to respond that way if the gospel is taking root. It then says we have to bear with one another in love, right? To bear is actually going to be a little bit difficult. That's what the word bear encompasses, okay? And so we have to be willing to, to be humble, to understand that your brother or sister, they're not like you. You have to fight with them. In fact, if you are around a bunch of people that are just like you, you really aren't loving others. You're just loving an extension of yourself, Okay, And so now all of a sudden we see as the gospel brings in this mix, as it brings in people not like us, we have to be willing to bear with them just as Christ is willing to bear with us. As the gospel takes root, it will naturally begin to alter the space that you live in and it will begin to look different. Are you bearing with others or are you bailing on others? What is your life mark what does it look like? Think about your past, okay? This isn't to shame you, but it is to say that as the gospel takes root, you should be willing to bear with each other, even if that's hard to do. To bear is hard work, but it's gospel work because it's what Christ does in our brokenness, amen? We can proclaim that. We are a broken people, but he bears with us. Like, like if you're married, think about it in context of marriage, okay? Uh, 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 this is the only way that a marriage will ever work, Right? Like like if I had to bear with me in marriage, then one of us would die, right? But when my wife bears with me, then she is patient as God does a work, and she even aids with God in that work and begins to help me look more and more like Christ. The only way a marriage will work. And that's why there's a lot of divorce in our culture even. We are unwilling to bear with one another through it. And so if we want to buck that trend and be people of God, then we need to not divorce each other. But we need to bear with one another and fight for each other, right? Relationships in the body of Christ, when they are functioning correctly, they look like this. Paul then tells us to be unified in this bond of peace, hence why I keep hitting on this unity piece. Unity is active, it's not passive. It says that we are zealous to maintain it. The word maintain means we actually already have it, right? We just have to continue in that. We have to be willing to suffer for greater unity. Does this heart posture sound hard yet? It does for me, right? If you don't think it's hard, then you ain't living in this, right? It is hard, hard, hard work. But we have to be willing to do this. And only by the power of Christ, which was just mentioned at the end of the prayer in chapter 3, only by that power of the Spirit working in us can this be done. However, friends, if this is done, who doesn't want to be a part of a community like this? Like imagine if people are patient with you, they're, they're humble with you, they're not thinking of themselves, they're thinking about you first, right? They're fighting for unity, they're, they're striving for oneness, they're, they're fighting for you to be built up, like this is what our hearts crave and our souls crave, and so Paul starts off in saying, look, this gospel has to impact our posture towards others, our, our attitude, our, our thinking, it has to begin to change. We have to have the right attitude with one another. In fact, Tony Merida, who's a pastor and a biblical commentator, he said this, in order to pursue these qualities, we must be willing to renounce the opposite of each. We must renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness. We must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to walk in forbearing love. We must renounce indifference and passivity in order to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. And so Paul says, let us have a right attitude towards others, a right posture, okay? If we're gonna accomplish mission, this has to be where it starts, is with each other. He then goes on, let's keep reading in verse four. It says, there is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now notice, Paul isn't saying in verses 1 through 3 that we strive for unity at any cost. All right, We strive for unity underneath the banner of the gospel. You tracking with that? And so while we should always have this attitude toward one another, there's a, a gospel confession that should align our attitudes. That's the second way that our hearts, our, our posture, our thinking needs to change is that we need to have a gospel confession together, all right? And so, well, what is this Confession. Well, Paul actually gives seven one statements here, which uh, highlight the implications of our unity underneath the banner of the gospel. He starts off by saying that we are one body, okay? And so though diverse in our background and though diverse in our gifting, we are united in the church as one. And so, yes, my mom owns a horse right yes my dad lives in the hood right like yes my background and and the ways i come off are going to make me a little bit different from this person's background who who is very very different than me from this person who grew up overseas from this person who uh, votes this way or this way from this person yes we are different maybe gifting wise i am the, the 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 finger and you are the knee and she is the leg but but together we are still one body And as we recognize that, it'll unify us. The gospel brings us together as a church, right? We have one spirit, it says. We all have the same power of God working within us to remind us of the truth of the gospel. The spirit in me should love the spirit in you. Why? Because God is not divided, right? And so if we are divided, it is something fleshy going on there because the spirit isn't divided from himself, And if you are saved and I am saved, then something should be working toward this unity, right? We need to have one spirit. And remember that this unites us in our differences. We have one hope. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that we were a people without hope, but now we have a hope. We're all looking forward to the same thing. This can unite us as we long for this redemption together. We are looking towards the same thing. We will one day be together forever with no more sin. Hallelujah. Worship the Lamb, right? But until that day, we look for it together. We have one Lord. This is the same Savior. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When early Christians would make this proclamation, what they were inevitably saying is that Jesus, or, um, sorry, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. All right? What the Jewish Christians were saying was Jesus is the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so making this confession right here could have you lose all of your relational connections. It can even have you lose your head. That's going to unite you as you're doing it together. You're tracking with that? And the same is honestly true today. There are parts in the world where proclaiming Jesus as Lord will have you lose your head. But even here, it can have us lose our relationships as people reject that. So then we unify together to say, no, 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 we do see the power of God together. I am in this with you. I know it is hard. Let's keep pressing toward Jesus. This should unify us as we proclaim the Lord together. We have one faith. Faith here refers to the body of truth that we believe, okay? We have the same basic unity around the central message of the gospel. Therefore, as we believe in the scriptures, we should uniformly believe in, I don't know, say Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 right? Even though that is hard together, we believe it together, but we should also be able to see the rest of the scriptures that point out things like sin, and we should reject that together. When we see somebody acting prideful, we don't go, oh, that's okay, we're just going to be unified. No, no, no. It's unity, but not unity at any cost. It's unity underneath the banner of faith, and so we strive for that together, pointing one another toward the power of Jesus in this confession of faith. We have one baptism, it says. This is a common experience that we all share together. We're saying, I died to my old life and I resurrect to a new one. I am not my own, I am now following Jesus. And we all do that together. That's why we rejoice at baptisms as a church, right? And then we have uh, one God and Father. So we're a family. We're one because we now have the same blood running through us in Jesus Christ, right? We may not be blood-related. Psych, just kidding. Yes, we are. We're closer blood-related than even our blood relatives because this blood is eternal, and this blood will unify us forever, and so we are related underneath the same Father. Now, actually, notice the Trinity within this creed, right? You have God the Father, you have Jesus Christ the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit of God. The Trinity is the perfect example of unity, They are unified. They are humble. They are sacrificial. They point to the other person over and over and over again. There is a a great unity that cannot be divided. And so if we are Christians, then we are actually brought in one with Christ. We enter into the Trinity. So we too then should fight for unity with one another. This is beautiful, right? And this is what God allows us to be a part of. So we have one gospel confession. Then we keep going in verse 7. Okay, now that we're unified, we unify around one another, we unify under this confession. Now what? Well, it says, but, counter, right? Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So in this unity, we actually now see that we begin to proclaim something together. It's this gospel diversity. The gospel actually brings us gifts. And so as we uh, horizontally love each other and as we horizontally think about each other, we try to impact the world together, but we actually celebrate our differences in the process for God has gifted us in different ways. And so Paul in verse 7 there says that grace was given to each one of us, right? Well, in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that grace was given to him to preach to the Gentiles. And now he says, this is his calling, this is his mission, right? And now he says grace was given to each one of us which means we all have a certain calling. We all have a certain gifting that God has given us to make much of his name, but it's gonna be different. Just as Paul went to the Gentiles or Peter went to the Jews, so me and you are gonna have different callings, and yet, underneath the banner of the gospel, we're working for the same thing. Now, notice there in verse eight, once again, Jesus is the ultimate giver of those gifts, right? He is generous with us, and we should therefore then be generous with one another. As Jesus generously gave you gifts that you do not own that are from him, we then give other people things that, hey, we don't really own anyway, right? We give to them sacrificially. In fact, because it is Christ, the great king who gives these gifts, when you see someone's gift at work, then you should actually begin to adore Jesus, You tracking with that? Right? Like like when someone's gifts bless you, you have to recognize that that is actually Jesus blessing you because they didn't have those gifts in the first place. So this is an extension of the love of God. And as we practice that together, then we get to uniformly yet diversely highlight the beauty of Jesus together. And it expands our understanding and our joy of the gospel. And so we have to have the right thinking, the right understanding. And because Jesus came from heaven to earth, in verse 9 it says, and rose, died, gave us gifts, we understand we make much of him, right? And remind me, he came from heaven to earth to show the way. Some of you are like, what just happened? That means you ain't grew up in church, you ain't missed nothing with that, all right? Right, but Jesus came from heaven and then into earth, okay, and then he died and then he rose and then he gave you gifts, he now reigns in heaven, but he wants you to use those gifts, amen? amen? This is the beauty of what God has called us into. The realities of the gospel, verse nine and 10, should impact the way that we use our gifts with one another. As Jesus was generous, we should be generous with each other. And then that lands us into our last section here for the morning, verses 11 through 16. So it says, and so connecting the two thoughts, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In the last section, Paul wants us to think correctly and have the right attitude about our mission. We have a gospel mission that we are on together. We have to see and understand what God has called us into, which is mainly the building up of his church, that verse says, with the gifts that he has given to us. So each of us has a different gifting, but as we operate as a team to complete the mission together, which is the exaltation and the multiplication of our resurrected King Jesus, as his name is made known, then we use our gifts together to make much of him. Like in basketball, let's say, you don't want five, seven footers on the floor at the exact same time, right? Because while you're probably going to get a lot of rebounds and a lot of blocks, right? Like you're getting it stolen from you every time because they ain't got no handles unless you're KD, right? (laughs) And so you need a plurality of gifts to operate well as a team so that all functions as they're working together can make the best outcome. And the same is true in the church. You don't want 12 apostles and no pastors, right? You don't want uh, there to be a a different, you want the the gifts to be working together. No gift is more or less important than the other, just different roles, okay? And so as we play out our roles together and our functions, we see God made much of. Now, the leadership giftings here, we actually did a sermon on, on January 14th called Build the Church, And so if you want to learn more about those gifts particularly, then go back and listen to that. It's January 14th. You can find the podcast. So I'm not going to dive deeply into the gifts today because it was just a few months ago that we covered those. But I do want to give an overview as to what Paul is trying to guide us with in this passage as a whole. Essentially, apostles are starters. They're initiators. Prophets are truth-tellers. They help uh, apply God's word so as not to go astray into false thinking or into false acting. Evangelists are gospel sharers, right? And they're particularly gifted in this. So by the way, every one of these gifts is also a command of you as an individual Christian. So just because you're not gifted in evangelism doesn't mean that you are now void from having to share the gospel. No, it's just some people are especially gifted in this, right? Like I could be sharing the gospel for like years with a person and then I bring Todd Watkins over and he's like, hey, my name's Tom." they're like, I repent and believe in Jesus, right? It's <laughs> like, how did that happen? <laughs> like, I know the word, I've been laying it out, right? But some people have this gift, okay? And that's beautiful as God uses them to build up. Some are shepherds, which are just pastors or caretakers. They love the church, they love the sheep. And then some are teachers, they're communicators, they're instructors. And sometimes you see people with a couple of these giftings, but ultimately these are some of the leadership gifts that then they do what? They're here to do the work, No, the next verse says that they equip the saints to do the work. And so it's all of us as saints collectively that are doing the work and building up the church. It's not just the pastors or the teachers or the evangelists. No, no, no. All of us collectively are using these gifts. And I would even argue that we all have some of these gifts within us that as we begin to operate and function correctly, the church builds itself up in love. And what happens is is we tend to get caught up in our own individual gifting. And we say, well, where am I at on this? Who am I in this? But listen, friends, that's not the thrust of this text. The text says collectively, Collectively, we do this together. And so, in fact, I should be able, right, to look at Johnny or to look at Takasha or to look at Scott, to look at Mary, to look at him and begin to say, hey, look, these are some of the gifts that you have. In fact, as you use this together, we are built up. Let's all do this together collectively. We should be working together with one another. Paul says that this then builds us up in character and in doctrine to mature manhood. In fact, he contrasts it with being a child, right, Don't be childish, be a man, okay? We're not to act like children, but maturing more and more and more in our actions, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our mission with one another. Why? Well, because as we mature, the church matures. And as the church matures, mission gets accomplished more effectively and fruitfully. You following that? And so our own maturity then is important, right? As we mature, we send more missionaries, we plant more churches, we make more disciples, we serve our church more, we see more baptisms, right? This matters, okay? And then it says also our mind matters within this, right? As we mature, we are protected from false thinking and false doctrine, Hello, because we live in a culture that will lie to you all the time. One week they say that this is right, the next week they say that this is right. One week what you're doing over here is hateful, the next week it's actually really good. One week this is beautiful, the next week this is not. One week this is to be celebrated, the next week it's to be rejected. And all of a sudden our culture waves, right? Like a a ship in the middle of the sea with no motor or guide. It's just tossed around by the waves. And so we then mature as we sit in the scriptures and understand that from one another, Our mind is protected from being like that ship that gets tossed all over the place. But we unify underneath our confession, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? And then we begin to mature one another as we don't get led astray, but we follow each other and we love each other in our actions toward each other, speaking the truth in love, highlighting the beauty of the gospel. We should look more and more mature, therefore, as a church, and yet at the exact same time look more and more messy, Why? Because as we mature, we should be seeing the gospel take root in other people's lives and brand new people come into the kingdom who are messy. Man, praise God for that, right? When I came into the kingdom, I was messy. I am messy right now, right? And we need to mature with one another. So it should be looking more and more beautiful and more and more messy as the gospel takes root. And I love that piece, right? It's a beautiful part of what God has called you into. Don't miss the thrust of this. God has called you into something massive, friends. There's something beautiful here, right? He gave you gifts to build the church, not just to sit on the sidelines. He wants you to use your gifts, right? And if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you, and that means you have been given something, he has given you gifts, he has been generous with you and now wants you to be generous with others as you bear with one another and encourage one another, you mature each other in Christ. And then as we go on mission, as we make much of Jesus in this world together, then we see the expansion of the church, the glory of Christ, because our King is worthy of that very thing. And so we are to do this together, right? God has called you into something eternal. Paul Tripp, who is a pastor in in Philly, says this, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes, In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And hello, he wants you to be a part of it. This is so beautiful, right? Like, I mean, think about it like this. Because some woman in some farm town 300 years ago shared the gospel with somebody in that farm town, you're now sitting in here worshiping Jesus this morning, right? You tracking with that? Like what we do actually makes a difference. And because you in some city named Austin, Texas are, are making much of Jesus, and somebody 300 years from now will be worshiping, have no idea who you are, but you'll know who they are as you look down in heaven, rejoicing with the resurrected king as his name is made much of. We are a part of something eternal. And it's not just 300 years ago or 300 years from now. Friends, that lasts forever. We are eternal souls, we get to do this together. I'm about to like kick some things up here, yo. I'm excited in this joint, right? Like God is calling you into something, friends. He is making much of his name through you. This is beautiful, this will last. And so here's the reality, friends, that we can know that this is true. Here's how we can know that this is important. It's because this was Jesus's very life displayed for us, was it not? Jesus is our perfect example in everything in this text. Jesus was uh, a bore with people that were not like him, you know, because he was God and they're not. Right? He bore with them. Jesus walked in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. Jesus was humble and gentle and patient and eager to maintain unity, and then he went and created it where there was none. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility that he might unify where there was no unity. He was the essence of this. He is the one Lord. He is our one faith. We are baptized into the name of Jesus. He is our example of all of our gospel confession, right? He is the one with all of the gifts. He has every single gift. You are given the gifts of Christ. He has all of them, that means, and he exercised them to perfection. As he showed his shepherding, as he showed his evangelistic skills, he started something where there was none. Like, planting a church is really, really hard, but to plant the first church, you got to be God, right? Thank you, God, that he did that. Jesus was exercising these gifts, and still, he is still the head. He's still building up the church, verse 13 there says, right? He's still pouring down into the body at large. He's still active within us, and yet, he's also our atonement where we fail to live this out. Because at the cross of Christ, Jesus would pay the price that we should have paid. Though fully gifted, Jesus died like a sinner, right? Though the peacemaker, he died in utter agony facing the wrath of God. Though he was the unified one, he died separated, forsaken by God. Why? So that you who should be forsaken by God will never have to be forsaken, but united as one underneath him. Jesus, where we failed to live this out, he pays that price for us. And now because Jesus paid that price, because he is the God who can do this, we can now run with passion, with fire for the sake of the gospel. As Jesus comes inside of us and as we even fail, that's okay. Confess, repent, and then keep running because he is your Lord that is making you into his image. He is the Lord that's bringing you together. He is the beautiful point in all of this text, right? And so how do we apply this? All right, what, what do we do within all of this? Well, maybe you need to, let's say, grow in your theology, right? So that you're not tossed like the waves in the wind. Man, talk to some people who you think are good at that. Maybe you need to grow in bearing with others or be more patient or gentle or humble. Maybe you need to recognize that you have been called to a mission that is bigger than yourselves. And friends, man, get in the game. Get in the game, right? Serve the king with joy and gladness. Uh, maybe uh, you're, you're going to run hard for the sake of our king, but you got to recognize you have to have the right heart first. Because if you uh, are focused on mission but don't have the right heart, you hurt too many people in the process and mission doesn't get accomplished in the first place. That's why Paul started the section off the way he started off as. Maybe you need to grow in that. Maybe you need to think of your uh, others more than you think of yourself. Maybe you need to remember this mission. It's not just that God has given you gifts to benefit you, but he's given you gifts to benefit us. I don't know what it is. There's a lot in this text, right? But God is calling us to, to play within this, to, to get in the game, to build the family up. Family, let's build each other up then. And let's build out. Let's keep making more disciples. Let's keep reaching people who do not get to sit and worship God right now for they don't even know the beauty of who he is. Let's go share that with others. As God uses this church to plant missionaries and to to plant churches and, and to make disciples, man, would you be a part of that? as you are getting built up in love. Man, maybe it's you discipling kids, right, as Nick said. Man, he said, monthly, maybe you do it every week. This is your discipleship meeting, right, with our children. Maybe God is using you. I, I don't know what it is, but I pray that even right now, the Holy Spirit will begin to, to challenge you. Maybe you're now our next community group shepherd. Maybe you're our next pastor. Maybe you're our next planter. Man, maybe you're just You're just the one that is gonna be welcoming to so many people and you're gonna play the background. Nobody will know you exist, but our King does because you are part of the body that is getting built up in love. Friends, we have a mission and we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And I long to do it with you. I love that God has called this body together. I want to give my life to this. Let's give our lives together collectively to make much of our King Jesus, amen? Amen. May I love you guys. Let's run hard for our King. Let's run, let's pray.